Hey friends, Curtis Roysland from Price Community Church here. Uh, I was privileged to be the guest speaker this past weekend at Grace Life, but it turns out we had some technical difficulties in about the last third to a quarter of the message. And so uh, I just wanted to re-record this last section and we're gonna splice it in there with the live video because not because of anything about me, it's not because I'm awesome or my message is awesome, it's because we wanna make sure that we get everything we can out of God's word. So in a, in a little bit, you're going to see it cut to me preaching live, and then it's going to cut back to me here in the office. I really do hope this blesses you and that the power of God word, God's word transforms your life. As we, we're picking up in the middle of a chapter. It may just be helpful for me to give you a little bit of a heads up as to what's going on. Abraham and Sarah, back in Genesis uh, chapter 12, received a promise from God that they would, would have a son. And that promise has been unfolded. And God has been reasserting and reaffirming that promise and expanding it and making a covenant with him. But it's been years and years and years and years. And so we come to this story in Genesis 18 uh, that God, again, in Genesis 17, had confirmed that same promise to Abraham. But then in Genesis 18, we kind of get a different, a little bit of a different subplot going on. There's going to be this story about Sodom and Gomorrah, which probably is a, is a famous story. You're somewhat probably familiar with that. But into that story of Sodom and Gomorrah is this brief little episode that, of God's working in Sarah's life that's going to instruct us this morning on this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? So let's hear God's word, Genesis 18, verses 9 to 15. So they said to him, they being these messengers to come to Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, no, but you did laugh. This is God's word for God's people. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us now challenge us, encourage us, equip us, build us up into the likeness of Christ, most of all to transform us from one degree of glory into another, that we might be more like our Savior, a little bit more like him, even at the end of this message than we are right now. So God, we pray for your help and your spirit to be with us, and we ask that, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Doesn't that question kind of stand out as you read just that little section? Doesn't that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? It just like pops off the page. At least it does for me when I was studying in preparation for this. It, is anything too hard for the Lord? And look, here's the thing. I know, you know, chances are, um, if you know A Mighty Fortress and you know the lyrics to those songs, chances are many of us are church people. We've been in church for a long time. We've been Christians for a long time. We know the right answer, right? We know the Sunday school answer. We know the Bible answer to this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? 
But I think if we're honest, there's places deep in our hearts, there's things we've gone through, there's things we are going through, where there's a little bit of a question. We know the answer. Our mind knows the answer, but our heart doesn't resonate with our mind. And so this morning, we're going to come and and wrestle with this passage and ask for God's help to not only get the Bible answer, which is so crucial and so important because we have to align our heart with the truth of God's word, but also to really wrestle and be honest with where we're at and see what God has to say to us this morning. So this passage, as we go through it, we're just going to look at, kind of look at it through the lens of that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And we're going to probe the text and say, what answers are in the text to this question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I believe you're going to see four things, four reasons that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And so the first one is this, uh, nothing is too hard for the Lord because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Nothing's too hard for the Lord because he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. So, you know, it, remember that as we come to Genesis 18, we're only this far into the Bible, right? Like, we, we haven't had that much of progressive revelation progressively revealed to us yet this far. All, all really that Abraham and Sarah know about God is that he's a promising God, he's a covenant-making God, and he's the creator God. And if you were just to open up your Bible, say you came with a totally blank slate and you just opened up your Bible like you would any other book and began at the beginning, what would be the first thing you would read? You would read Genesis 1-1, where it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The, the kind of the backdrop to this whole story, the, the biggest part of the backdrop to this story in Genesis 18 is that fact right there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if that was all we knew about God, that would actually be quite a lot. Because what the Bible is teaching us when it tells us that, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is that everything but him depends on him. Like there's nothing that exists in and of itself. We don't exist in and of ourselves, but we came from him, the creator. Everything that exists comes from the creator. So if, if you think about that question, is anything too hard for the Lord through that kind of a lens that he is the creator, that everything that is, is because of him? that everything that exists, exists because of him, that everything that's living has life because of him, doesn't the whole universe begin like this loud, this, this low bass note that says, no, nothing is too hard for the Lord? But also remember that when we talk about God as the creator, when we say that God is the creator, because you know Christians, we love to get in arguments with other Christians about how exactly we're supposed to read Genesis 1 and then kind of miss the forest for the trees. What God is telling us when he says he's the creator is that our every moment, our every breath, our every heartbeat, every law of the universe, all completely and utterly depends on him always. He is not only the creator, he, he only didn't, didn't spring things into being and now they go on existing in and of themselves, but he upholds everything that is. Nothing, not only would nothing exist apart from the creator, but nothing would go on existing were it not for the fact that he upholds and keeps things. He's the sustainer of all that is. So imagine, if God were to reveal his sustaining power for a, the smallest amount of time, a nanosecond, a, a millionth of a nanosecond, everything would cease to exist. Everything would cease to be. Job uh, chapter 12, verse 10 says that in his hand, 
is the life of every living thing and the breath of all my, mankind. That, that all that lives and everything that breathes is in his hand. It depends on him. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says that Jesus is the one through whom God made the world and that he, God upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the origin, yes, he's the creator, but he's also the sustainer. He brings everything into existence and he keeps everything in existence. Everything that is owes itself completely to God. So how could there be anything that's too hard for the Lord? I mean, this, this truth, maybe that sounds like an academic truth, but, but that came home to me pretty powerfully just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it was a Friday morning and I went out for a run and it was, I was maybe like 10 minutes into my run and it was like six o'clock in the morning and my heart started pounding. And I don't mean like pounding like I was running really hard and it was just kind of racing. I mean like in a really strange, abnormal way. Like if you've ever had your heart pounding where you kind of feel like I probably should keep my mouth closed because if I open my mouth, my heart might just pop out. Um, that kind of feeling. And I, and I, you know, I'm a guy. So uh, I went through the day like 10 hours later of that happening. I was finally like, maybe I should get this checked out. Like maybe this is more than just you know, anxiety or something like that. And so I called for confirmation as as a good husband. I called my wife and I said, hey, uh, you know, for like 10 hours, I've been at the office. I've been doing all this different stuff. I've been trying, you know, I've been praying. I've been, uh, you know, kind of do breathing exercises, see if I can calm myself down. But it just keeps pounding. She's like, yeah, you should probably get that checked out. Not satisfied. I did doctor on demand. You guys ever do doctor on demand? You can, you know, I'm trying to avoid going to the real doctor. And, and as soon as I, you know, tell the, the doctor on demand what's going on, she's like, yeah, you, you need to go to the emergency room. Like, if it's your heart, you need to go to the emergency room. Um, so I finally, you know, 10 hours later, uh, multiple la layers of confirmation, I was finally convinced, hey, I do need to go to the emergency room. I went to the emergency room. Um, just a tip, if you write heart on the reason you're coming in, you're going to the front of the line. Um, it's like, I'm, not, I'm like H-E-A-R. She's like, that's good, let's go. Um, she hooks me up, you know, they, the nurses hook me up to the, uh, the EKG, and immediately they're like, yeah, you're in atrial fibrillation. Um, that means that the top two chambers of your heart are not pulsing like they ought to. They're just kind of vibrating, and the bottom chambers of your heart are trying to compensate for that, and that's why you're getting that pounding feeling. So that was Friday, Friday evening, that's kind of a world-shifting, world-changing, worldview-changing thing to be, be told, hey, this organ that you depend on, like if it stops working for a second, you die, it's broken. Something's wrong with it. And, and, I, and so it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the future holds. I'm immediately getting frustrated and angry with God, and I'm immediately thinking like, you know, uh, my, my way of thinking is like, I don't, I don't want to let people down. Like if something happens to me, that means they're going to let my family down. I'm going to let my church down. What, you know, I, I'm struggling with this. And, and my, what's happening is really that the illusion that I am self-sufficient is crumbling, right? So I came into worship Sunday morning and they were, they were singing and uh, we sang a couple of songs. One of the songs that uh, we sang was that song, Blessed Be Your Name, you probably know it. There's that line in the bridge that says, you give and take away, you give and take away. What's the next line? My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Sing another song. Then we sing a, a um, song called, um, You Are My Rock. And in that, in that chorus, and You Are My Rock, you sing, You Are My Life. 
may you be lifted high. There is no other like Jesus Christ. And then, as if I wasn't already feeling the weight of my idolatry and, and, and just feeling, realizing how, how dependent I was on God, in the chorus of You Are My Rock, it says, my strength to stand, all of my days are in your hand. And I just realized that I have been living my life as if I'm sufficient for my life, as if I don't depend on God's sustaining power for every breath and every heartbeat and the strength to stand up and the, and the ongoing uh, existence of the so-called natural laws of the universe that gravity still exists and the laws of thermodynamics still exist. I've just been going on living my life as if all of that exists in and of itself and forgetting that every, the breath of every living thing is in the hand of God and, and the life of all mankind and that in him we live and move and have our being. God is not only the creator, he's the sustainer. And that's one reason that we know that there's nothing too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for the Lord because he's the creator and the sustainer. But the second thing we learn, the second reason, nothing is too hard for the Lord because nothing's hidden from the Lord. So we come more closely in, into our text this morning. One of the things that stands out about the story is that the whole time Sarah's in the back. Right? Sarah, Sarah's in the back. She's in the tent. And yet, God's kind of speaking to her through what he's saying to Abraham. Sarah never actually speaks anything to God. And yet, God knows everything that's going on in her mind. Right? So no, notice this. In verse 10, um, God has, the Lord has reiterated the promise that he's going to bring a son. That, that promise that, that God is going to bless Abraham and that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, and we know that that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. But it's been so long, you know, Abraham and, and Sarah have, have been waiting so long for the fulfillment of this, that when Sarah hears what God says to Abraham again, when, when she hears that promise again, she scoffs. She, she laughs in a mocking way. She kind of laughs to herself like, yeah, right, right? Notice how the text emphasizes that the Lord knows that that's what she's doing in her heart, even though she doesn't do it aloud. So she's, uh, it says she was in the tent behind him, him being Abraham. And then it specifically says she laughed to herself. And then that, that kind of internal monologue she has in the rest of verse 12, that's all to herself. And yet when God speaks to Abraham, speaks back to Abraham, he, re, he kind of uh, replays what she's been saying to herself in his question. It's a way of, of him letting her know that he knows what's going on in her heart. He knows the thoughts and the attitudes of her mind and of her heart, that none of this is hidden from God. God knows Sarah's circumstances, but more than that, God knows what's really going on inside. God knows that she's struggling with unbelief. She's not believing his promise. So his questions to her are, are rhetorical, right? God, doesn't, God isn't actually wondering why did Sarah say such a thing. God knows. The questions aren't rhetorical. They're, they're a way of showing her and showing us as the reader of Scripture that the, the promise that he's been making comes from someone, someone with supernatural power and wisdom. You know, it, it, it takes a little bit of a different ring when someone says, makes a promise to you, and I'm going to come back to you in about this time next year, and you're going to have a son. And in your brain, you're like, mm-hmm, right. And then he goes, why did you laugh at that? Whoa, okay, this is a supernatural person. This is a supernatural being. He might actually have the power and the wisdom to make this promise come to pass. But the questions are, so the questions aren't just about showing 
uh, his supernatural power, though. The questions are partially about showing his supernatural power, but it's also about correcting, transforming Sarah, transforming her unbelief into belief. So you can see this as you look at verse 15. When she heard the Lord's question, she denied, uh, she, she denied that she scoffed at his promise because she was afraid. But then God says, no, but you did laugh. Kind of that divine mic drop. It's just kind of interesting that that's how the story of Sarah ends. Because then it just goes on. God's like, no, you did. Peace out. But what? There's two things I think that are interesting here. One is that God directly confronts this un, her unbelief. He directly confronts her denial. You know, sometimes we think, you know, this struggle I'm going through, this sin that I'm dealing with, this temptation, this, this area of unbelief, like God, God understands and it's like not a big deal. And, and, you know, he probably just doesn't, he doesn't care that much about this particular situation. He's going to sweep that under the rug. But, but that's not how God operates, right? God doesn't sweep things under the rug. God directly confronts her unbelief. He directly confronts the lie. He directly con- confronts her, her denial. God doesn't sweep things under the rug, but with that, you have to notice the second part, that this confrontation, this, this uh, intentional statement, this intentional correction, it's not a curse, right? God doesn't curse her for unbelief. God doesn't curse her for, for scoffing and laughing to herself, but, but it's a correction. The, the aim is not to, to make her feel bad. God doesn't fly off the handle and, and come in his anger, but he's coming in, in love. He wants to correct her and take her from unbelief to belief. Now, he's very direct, but, but he, he's not angry. You know, he doesn't smite her like he's going to smite Sodom and Gomorrah in just the next chapter. He wants to correct her. You know, we don't like always to think about that that's how God operates with those whom he loves. He corrects us. We would prefer, I think, not to be corrected. But God says in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that the writer says that God corrects us, he disciplines us, so that we might share in his holiness. He does it for our good, right? He, he doesn't, he's not domineering and correcting us just because he's so frustrated that we keep doing the wrong thing. He wants us to do the right thing because he loves us and he wants us to flourish in faith and living under his lordship. So this correction that comes to Sarah, the questions and this whole scenario, it's about taking Sarah from unbelief to belief or maybe taking her from sort of weak faith to deeper faith. And we know that that's actually what, what happens. It actually works. You know, like, like a, I mean, maybe you're like me and you, you're, as a parent, you feel like the discipline never works. Um, but for God, in God's supernatural hands, the one who knows everything, right, in his supernatural hands, the discipline actually works. The correction actually takes, kind of, we can, if we change the metaphor, the, the great physician, the medicine actually works, right? It, it, it heals. And we know that it actually works for Sarah because, again, if you look at the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, the writer says that by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. So the author of Hebrews is picking up something from the Spirit as he's writing the book of Hebrews, not something that's explicit in chapter 18 of Genesis. But what he's picking up is that when God confronted her in her unbelief, and God sought to correct her in her unbelief, it actually worked. She moved from unbelief to belief because it was by faith that Sarah received the power to conceive. And so God doesn't correct, God's not into, you know, he doesn't curse her, but he corrects her. He's trying to transform her and give her deeper faith 
in him. I, I know that if you're like me, you're just like Sarah. You have an inner monologue, right? You've got, a, you've got some scoffing unbelief in there somewhere, I'm sure. And we think sometimes that God doesn't notice those types of things, that he doesn't notice our unbelief, he doesn't notice our scoffing, or that, you know, if, as long as we don't say it out loud, then, you know, we're not being rebellious or, or sinful or unbelieving. We, we do the same kind of thing that Sarah does here. We recite to God our circumstances, which we think uh, are going to prevent him from doing this, that, or the other thing, where we recite back to God, our, or we kind of recite to ourselves as evidence that, that God couldn't possibly bless me, or God couldn't possibly forgive me, or God couldn't possibly change me, or change my relationships, or transform me in any way. We do the same exact thing that Sarah did. We try to uh, we, we have a list of reasons and an internal monologue. And wh- while Sarah outrightly denies to God's, more or less to God's face, we don't, we're not usually that bold, right? Like, if God says something, we wouldn't be like, oh, I don't believe that, or no, I didn't do that. We, we wouldn't be, we would just hide it, right? We just say nothing. We just try to hide our sin, our struggle, our temptation, our hurt. We just try to keep it hidden inside. And if we think if we keep it hidden inside, maybe God won't notice, we just go on, we put on our church face, right? Put on your Christian face, come to church, act like everything's okay, fake it till you make it. Maybe even worse than that is we just float through life and we're not even in touch with our, what's really going on spiritually at all. You know, we just go from distraction to distraction to distraction and it never even occurs to us that there's unbelief and idolatry and sin making a home in, in our heart. Do you know what's happening... First of all, you know how silly it is to try and hide things from someone who knows all that is? Like, you, you, do you, that's foolish, right? It's not a good plan for success because he already knows what's going on in our hearts. But do you know what's really happening? It's not that you want to be foolish. It's idolatry. When, you, when you're struggling with something, uh, be it uh, hurt or brokenness or sin or temptation or unbelief or doubt or whatever, when you're struggling with something and you refuse to open your heart up and share that with God and be honest with God, what you're really saying is somewhere inside of me, I know there's an answer for this problem. And you know what that is? It's idolatry. You're saying, when you hide those things, you're basically saying, God, this is too hard for you. But somewhere in here, maybe somewhere down in my big toe, there's the answer for this problem, for this struggle. It's idolatry. We keep it to ourselves because we, think, we really do somehow believe that there's an answer for our struggle and an answer for our sin and our unbelief deep inside. But when you flip that and you repent and you just open up and you say, here's where I'm really at, God. You know, I'm not going to put my Christian face on anymore in front of you when I know that you know everything that's really going on. When you come in repentance like that, that's when you, find, you begin to find, it's not like an instantaneous thing, but, but you begin to find healing, Right? You begin to find, you, you, you can have forgiveness and reconciliation to God and you, you begin to have, you know, hope takes root in your heart. That God is, there is actually nothing too hard for him and he actually can change this marriage or this job situation or this, whatever you're going through. And what's crazy is, that's what, the, I mean, the Bible says that over and over and over again. David says in, in the book of Psalms that when his mouth was shut up, his bones wasted away. It wasn't literally that his bones were were wasting away, but that when he kept his sin inside, it was like he was rotting spiritually. 
First John says that uh, anyone who says he's without sin makes God a liar. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. The book of Proverbs says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So why do we go on trying to hide what's really going on? One time, uh, back during the Great Awakening, so this would have been like 1740s or 1750s, something like, uh, like that, Jonathan Edwards, who uh, is kind of one of my personal hero- heroes, he was leading this prayer gathering. About 800 men had gathered for prayer. And an uh, anonymous note came from a, from a woman outside, and it was describing her husband as he had become very difficult to live with and unloving and kind of prideful. And, and she wondered if, by passing this note into Edwards and to the, to the group, whether they might pray for him, right? You know, 800 men there just to pray. Let's ask them to pray for, for this man. And so Edwards gets the note, and, and he reads it privately, and then he thinks, yeah, we, we should probably... Uh, we should probably pray for this man. So he reads the note out loud. He describes the man who's become unloving and prideful and difficult. And then he says, now will the man who's described in this note stand so that we can pray for him? And 300 men <laughs> stood up. Now, I'm not going to do that to you guys this morning. I don't have any anonymous notes for y'all. <laughs> Thanks, Trey. Um, but bring your unbelief into the light. Why go on pretending? He knows nothing is hidden from him. And and he wants to bring his transforming power into your life to change what you're struggling with. But but the way he wants to do that is by you first admitting what's really going on inside. God's probably not going to show up at your tent, knock on your door, and say, why'd you do that? Why why do you go on believing that? What's wrong wrong with your attitude? Why why, Why won't you trust me? God's not going to do that, right? But, but he might have put people in your life, maybe the church body, maybe your home group, maybe just people that you know outside of, of Grace Life community that, that will speak into your life, not only speak criticism, but to, to correct with grace and truth, to try and apply the gospel to your struggle so that you can see hope and transformation in your struggle. Do you have people in your life like that? You have people discipling you, someone discipling you, someone who challenges you, someone who encourages you. Do you confess your sins to God? Do you, do you speak with your pastors or go to the counselors at, at Beholding and Becoming? Are you in a home group? Are you, are you doing any of that stuff where, where you can be discipled, encouraged, and you can bring the mess that's inside into the light and find healing and hope? Nothing's too hard for the Lord because nothing is hidden from the Lord. The third thing that we find, nothing's too hard for the Lord because nothing and no one can constrain or deter his promise. I, I put that in a kind of stilted language. Let's put that in normal human being language. Uh, nothing and no one gets in God's way. Nothing and no one gets in God's way. You know, you can have the right answer to, to, the, to that first part that we talked about, that God's the creator and sustainer. And, and that nothing is, second answer, part of the answer, nothing is hidden from him. But there's still something about us that we, we tend to more readily believe God might work in someone else's life than, than work in our life. Like everybody thinks their situation is so unique that God's never, could never or will never or might never do anything in their life, in their heart, in their circumstances. You know, everybody's individual circumstances are insurmountable. You can see that's what Sarah is basically thinking, right? In verses 11 and 12. 
She has her reasons that lead her to kind of laugh at God's promise. Verse 11 says she's old. Uh, if you didn't know what old means, it means advanced in years. That's there too. It says, this is kind of a Hebrew idiom. Uh, the way of women has ceased to be with her. That's, a, that's a, a, a euphemism or an idiom for saying she's already past menopause. Uh, for, ma- for that matter, it says that it implies that they haven't been, Abraham and Sarah haven't been intimate with one another in a long time because that's what the shall I have pleasure in verse 12 is, is kind of a, not the pleasure of a son, but the pleasure of a husband and a wife. So in Sarah's mind, you know, I'm super old. Abraham's super old. We, we haven't been with one another in a long, long time or, or very infrequently. I'm postmenopausal. How could God ever give me a son? All of this in Sarah's mind is a, is a mighty bulwark. You know, we sing about God being, being a mighty fortress, but in her mind, all these are reasons, uh, all these circumstances are a mighty bulwark that are going to prevent God from doing what he's promised. They're an impenetrable barrier. She's thinking about God as if he were like a man or a woman. Because, and it's somewhat understandable, isn't it? Because how do you go on experiencing your life? Your life is kind of like a game of chess or maybe like a game of checkers where, where each, each move that you make cuts you off from other moves you might have made, right? And every move that you make opens up new opportunities that you wouldn't have had had you, had you gone another way. And, and you're kind of in relationship to all these other human beings that every time they make a choice, it also impinges on your freedom and impinges on your options and your ability. And so there's this constant back and forth in our lives between us and what the circumstances and, and the other people in our lives that every choice is kind of back and forth and limiting us or opening us up to new opportunities and new experiences. But God isn't like that. There is no back and forth in God. You know, God doesn't have to like wait around for just the right circumstances to happen in Sarah and Abraham's life so that he can fulfill his promise. He's been intentionally waiting as long as he's waited to fulfill his promise. God doesn't need the natural processes uh, because without them, things become impossible. God works over and under and around and through and every other preposition you can come up with to accomplish his purposes. And it really doesn't matter what's going on in your life in terms of there's no barrier. There's no bulwark. There's nothing that can prevent God from accomplishing his plans and his promises. God is completely free. You know, he's providentially ruling and reigning over everything that is. He brings his his providential care to his people, the church. And the circumstances don't deflect God or deter God or constrain God or get in God's way or cause God to stumble. Nothing like that ever happens. He is always able to, to bring his purposes to pass. Job, in in chapter 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can do all things, God, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And what's really interesting, man, is that that comes on the tail end of some tremendous suffering in Job's life. It's It's after walking through all the suffering that he can still somehow say, God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. God's total freedom and his, his providential rule and reign, the fact that he's no one and nothing gets in his way, somehow, mysteriously, that even includes suffering. It even includes evil. For instance, in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are praying after they've been, uh, remember they, they were before the council who told them to stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus and, and they said, should we obey men rather than God? 
So they go back, they've been released, they go back in Acts chapter 4, they're praying, and they, they're praying to God, and they say, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever. So we see that nothing and no one gets in God's way. And somehow, mysteriously, even in, in God's purposes and God's supernatural power and wisdom, this even includes suffering and evil. So let me remind you, for instance, in Acts 2, but also in Acts 4, it says that the death of God's own son was according to the predetermined plan of God. So Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, it says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Jesus was crucified according to whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. God wanted it to happen, but when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't God who crucified him. It was the Gentiles and Herod and Pontius Pilate and Israel. Isn't it amazing how God uses this almighty power that he's the creator and sustainer, that He nothing is hidden from him and that nothing and no one gets in, in his way? He uses that almighty power to bring the, to lift up the lowly, to save us, to, to apply and, and bring to pass redemption for us. And Sarah herself is going to learn this truth that, that nothing and no one gets in God's way. And just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 3, it says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son, in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah had borne him, Isaac. No, nothing is too hard for the Lord, because nothing and no one can get in God's way. And finally, nothing's too hard for the Lord, because he can bring life out of barrenness. He brings life out of barrenness, and in unexpected ways, this is a theme all throughout the Bible. In Genesis 21, that we just read, that, that God brings life out of the barrenness of Sarah. Um, that's her whole identity in, in the book of Genesis from chapter 12 up until chapter 21. The, the thing about her is that she's barren and she's 90 years old at this point and Abraham's 100 years old and God brings life in this radically unexpected way. And that really is the story as you go through the book of Genesis, as you go through the Bible, God is constantly using unexpe unexpected people and bringing life uh, out of barrenness in totally unexpected ways. And, and isn't the gospel itself the message that the Son of God, the King of God's kingdom, came into our world, took on our infirmities, bore our sins in the cross, paid for them, and purchased our redemption. And now that through him, not by anything we've done, but by faith in him, we are adopted, reconciled to God, and adopted into God's own family. So God is constantly bringing life out of barrenness. He, he brought life out of barrenness when he raised Jesus from the dead. He brought life out of barrenness when he gave us a new heart through faith in Jesus. Right here and right now, you can be fully forgiven, reconciled, and made new. You can have new life out of the barrenness through faith in Jesus. God is constantly working life, bringing life out of barrenness in unexpected ways. But I know if you're, if you're listening to this message, you're thinking, well, what about the, 
the metaphorical, you know, like the barrenness that I experience in my life? What about that thing which I've been crying out to God for, for what feels like forever, and it just doesn't seem like he's He's answering, you know, if nothing's too hard for him, why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he answer? Why doesn't he change what's going on? And, and I want to suggest to you that the story of, of Sarah and the birth of Isaac and, and the gospel itself are all encouragements to us and also challenges to us that when we remember that, that our, per, our, our salvation was purchased in such an unexpected way and that God always works in such unexpected ways, that maybe the answers to our prayers that we feel like God's not answering, maybe God is answering or will answer, but just in a radically unexpected way. So many of you might know the story of Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, 1967, when she was a teenager, she had a diving accident and was left a quadriplegic. And, and, you know, she had denial and bitterness and this whole struggle of how to live in this totally new way. You know, life is totally different for her now. And along the way, some, some well-meaning, solid Christian friends encouraged her to pray. You know, nothing's too hard for the Lord, right? So pray that he will heal you, you know, that he would heal your spine and your nervous system. And she wrestled with that. You know, she did pray and she struggled with the faith that in her head she knew God could heal her. And in, in her heart, she wondered if God would heal her. But if you would have told her that over the next 50 years, she would become an internationally known artist, an author. She's written over 25 books translated into 33 languages that she has a at one point, a daily radio show that was uh, aired on over 800 stations, she might have thought, if you would have told 1967 Joni, she, all of that, she might have thought that doing all of that was a more difficult accomplishment for God than simply healing her paralysis. If you had told her that she would become uh, a, a producer of albums and videotapes and found a ministry and become an advocate for disabled persons both nationally and internationally, and to do all of that under the lordship of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus, she probably would have thought that healing her in 1967 would have been the easy way out for God. Because as it turns out, God was bringing life out of barrenness in a totally unexpected way. And, and her faith, Joni's faith, that she could be transformed, turned out to be more useful in God's purposes than her faith that she could be healed. So as John Walton, who uh, read a commentary on Genesis, he puts it this way. He says, we must be cautious that as we accept by faith that nothing is too hard for the Lord, we do not begin to dictate to him which hard thing he must do, because he tends to have things in mind that go far beyond what we are able to ask or even think. So I want to challenge you, give him thanks for every breath and every heartbeat that you have. Bring your unbelief and your sin and your struggle out into the light. Open up your heart to come into the light of God's grace to be transformed. And trust him to bring life out of your barrenness. Whatever you're going through, God can bring life out of your barrenness. For nothing is too hard for the Lord. Amen.